Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 193 of FSOP Collaborate and Listen. This week on the podcast, I was happy to be joined by Rob Hirsch, a landscape photographer from California. Rob is a biologist by training, naturalist by heart, and photographer by passion. He has an intimate relationship with the natural world. This connection was established early during an annual childhood visits to Yosemite, which forged his bond with this magical place. Rob and I discussed some really fun topics this week, including how Rob got into landscape photography as a biologist, his incredible book, The Nature of Yosemite, A Visual Journey, Rob's love love affair with Yosemite National Park and the Yosemite Conservancy, how curiosity of the natural world and geological processes informs and guides his photography, his method of composition in landscape photography, using photography to inspire others to experience their own connections to a place, and more. Over on Patreon this week, Rob and I discussed the importance of developing personal relationships with other people as landscape photographers. Alright, before we begin, I wanted to remind listeners that my friends Gary Randall and Chris Byrne are still planning to host their 2021 Columbia River Gorge Workshop, which looks packed full of amazing locations at a reasonable price. Gary is the absolute master of the gorge, so it's worth checking out if you can. Look for a link in the show notes. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Rob Hirsch, man, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to chatting with you for a little while. Yeah, absolutely. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sending me a copy of your of your book, the The Nature of Yosemite: A Visual Journey. I would just say what an incredible piece of work that is. Ah, uh, thank you. I really appreciate that. That's super cool. Yeah, it's awesome. I um. Wasn't totally what sure what to expect, <laughs> you know, and um, and you know we'll get into get into why I said that later. But um, uh, for people that uh, aren't familiar with you and your photography, tell us a little bit about yourself, and um, would love to hear about how you got into this crazy world of photography. Yeah, you bet. That's probably a a good idea for me to do that since. Uh... I'd be willing to bet that very few, if any of your listeners know who I am. I've kind of been flying under the radar for a while as a photographer. Um, but yeah, my name is Rob Hirsch. Um, I'm originally a biologist, naturalist, uh, turned photographer. Um, I do generate most of my income from photography these days. Um, but I wouldn't really call myself a full-time photographer as there's just a lot of other things that are really important to me that I enjoy doing, being a father, putting on music events, various other things like that. Uh, but photography is definitely a passion and it's, it's really my, my, my career these days. Um, I live in Groveland, California, a little town right outside of Yosemite um, where my wife and I homesteaded a, a big, beautiful piece of property that's right adjacent to wilderness. Um, so we're right on the edge and living pretty much in the wilderness. And we live there with uh, uh, my son, our son and our two dogs, um, and then in Groveland, uh, we have a business that has a lot of different facets, but integrated into that is a gallery of, of nature photography. Um, you know, my first introduction into photography, well, I guess other than nearly failing my high school photography class, <laughs> a story for another time, all I wanted to do at that point was play sports, um, uh, was after college uh, when a, a friend of mine, uh, and I took a six-month backpacking trip through Africa, uh, eastern and southern Africa. 
and we went through seven or eight different countries. Um, and it was hands down the best experience in my life. And, uh, right before that, my dad, um, loaned me, I guess I should say maybe more of a permanent loan, um, his Pentax, uh, film SLR, uh, and a couple of lenses. And we packed up, I think we had maybe 60 rolls of film to take on the trip, which seemed like an extraordinary amount of film at the time. And, uh, and just had a blast taking pictures of the wildlife and the landscapes. And, uh, and the, the kind of the big watershed moment was, uh, in the Okavanga Delta in Botswana, which is, I'd argue, one of the most magical and epic places in the world. Uh, we expected only to stay there for about a week and we loved it so much. We ended up spending three and a half weeks there and, uh, took a ton of pictures and, and I was really stoked on the images until shortly after we got home and, and I saw that Franz Launting had just published his book on the Okavanga Delta. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, well, we're in the same place, but my image just looked nothing like that, you know? And it really <laughs> opened my eyes to what can be done with photography. Uh, and so for the next several years, as I was working as a field biologist, I was capturing images of the critters I was working with and the habitats and, and, and looking at books at the time, this is kind of before the internet days. And uh, I was a really competitive athlete growing up. And so I'd look at my pictures and I'd be like, I should be able to take better pictures than this when I kind of can see what else was out there. And I just kind of kept pushing myself little by little to get better. And I never really had aspirations of becoming a professional photographer. Uh, to be quite honest, when, when people might say, oh, you know, you got, you got a capacity for this. It's kind of a talent. Maybe you should consider it as a career. My, my reaction inevitably would be, that's nuts. Like I, I, I have, that sounds ludicrous and scary to me to have to sell pictures to feed myself. So it just was never really on my radar to, to become a photographer. But uh, as time went on, I slowly, you know, got better. And then when we did move to Groveland uh, in 2002, we started this business, Mountain Sage, and committed a couple of rooms to, to gallery space. And, um, you know, to be honest, I look back at the pictures I first put up on the wall that I think was pretty bold because I don't, <laughs> there was a couple of them were good, but a lot of them were, were mediocre by, by the standards I think of today. Um, but, but there were a couple of solid images. And in that first year, I um, uh, submitted to Nature's Best competition. And one of my landscapes was awarded kind of one of the winners in the landscape photography, in the landscape category. And that, that really gave me a little bit of confidence and, and got the momentum rolling. Um, for the next several years to develop relationships and find different avenues for my photography. And before I knew it, that's kind of what I was doing, you know, most of my time and generating most of my income. And uh, it just kind of organically evolved into, into my, 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 my general workflow. What was, uh, what were the main things that you did in order to improve your, your images? Take a lot of pictures. And, and the reality was this is before, digital. So I had to write a lot of notes down, right. You know, oh, yeah. working through apertures and shutter speeds, trying to figure things out. And, you know, the, 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 the learning curve now is, is so much easier with, I think with all the digital opportunities and online things. So I really just took a lot of pictures and looked at books and saw what was out there and a lot of trial and error more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I had, I had to laugh when you said that you looked back at your first images you put up on the, on the walls, because I remember somehow back in like 2010, I weaseled myself into a small gallery in Manitou Springs to sell my photos. 
and I look back at the photos I had up in there and it's, it's, it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know. That's exactly. I felt the same way. Right. Right. But you got it. You got to take a, you got to start somewhere. Right. Yes, and absolutely. To, to kind of, to kind of parlay you into the next steps. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, so I, I'm really curious to hear more about your, your background in biology, because it seems to me that your background in that has heavily shaped and informed your not only your attraction to landscape photography, but also your approach to it. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's definitely true. Um, you know, the way that I try to explain it to a lot of folks is, you know, I don't, I don't go out into nature because I'm a photographer. You know, I'm a photographer because I love being out in the natural world, and I'd be out there anyway, um, uh, uh, following animals around, um, tracking them, looking for birds' nests, trying to see what's over on the next ridge because I'm just so curious about what's out there. So, you know, I want to be out there anyway, and I really enjoy it, and and that I think lends to a certain level of of comfort in the natural world, right? Just that's where I like to be. That's kind of my comfort zone. And, and as a result, I think it helps me to kind of tune into the, all the surroundings and the subtleties. Cause you know, my, my senses aren't overwhelmed by everything that's going on. I can really, um, um, uh, tune some of that stuff out and key into the elements visually that I find compelling. Uh, and then on top of that, I think that, that being a biologist and working with a lot of animals, I, I tend to understand and know animal behavior. And that's helped in a lot of ways, you know, uh, seeing an animal, knowing what it wants to do, where it wants to go, predicting that kind of thing, and then being at the right place at the right time. You know, obviously, I, I probably fail more than I'm successful with that, but successful enough that, that, that it works occasionally. And, and then king into behavior as well. So like oftentimes I'm out there and I'll hear certain bird alarm calls or small mammal alarm calls and it'll key me right into a predator that's around. Um, Cause I just know that they're worried about something. And um, if you understand what they're trying to do or trying to say, uh, you can um, uh, uh, be a part of it and, and see what's out there as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things as I was reading through your book that really caught my attention is that you talked about your curiosity of biological and geological processes. And I was just curious, um, with that curiosity and that knowledge, how does that inform you as a photographer and how does that enhance your ability uh, to make good photographs? Whew, God, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I, um, you know, I feel like I'm trying to tell a story oftentimes with those things. So I particularly like uh, wildlife images that aren't just a portrait of the animal, but maybe put the animal in the context of its surroundings or showing behavior or actually displaying something that, that is interesting uh, rather than just a beautiful, you know, a, a straight up portrait of the animal so that there's some kind of uh, inquisitive nature for the viewer to see. And, and it helps to tell the story visually that you can either combine with words to expand upon that story uh, or, or let the, the, the imagery stand alone and, and, and peak, people's curiosity themselves. They might look at something and go, hmm, you know, what's going on there? And uh, and dig into it a little bit deeper. I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but it's no, no, totally. <laughs> no, it's interesting because uh this this past fall I tried to spend a lot more time thinking about and studying and being more curious about just things that I would encounter and and trying, you know, 
I'd find something and I'd be like, what is causing that? Like, and, or what is that about? And, and, and then I would, you know, try to find a way to, to make a photograph of that thing. And I think that that curiosity of what's happening in the natural environment can lead to some really interesting pho- photography. Absolutely. No, I think, I think, I think what you hit said right there is super key, at least for me, um, is that curiosity. It's just fun to explore, fun to learn about things, fun to ask the questions um, and then try to answer them in the field or come back and do a little bit of research. But uh, that, 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 that uh, overarching curiosity and wanting to dig deeper into what's out there uh, is 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 super super critical and a big part of the way I approach it, and that's that's cool to hear that uh, that you're kind of doing the same thing, and and exploring those avenues. Yeah, I'm trying to. I mean, it's uh, I'm, I don't have a natural uh, science background. I mean, obviously, I've taken you know a couple of college courses and high school and all that kind of fun stuff, but you know, I'm not. I'm certainly not a trained uh, biologist by any means, but I have a Definitely have a curiosity about the things that I run into in the world. So Yeah, well, that's, I, you don't have to be a trained biologist to dig those things, though. That's the thing. It's like you could be curious about it at any level. And and that curiosity just leads to so many other uh, compelling opportunities, photographically or intellectually and things like that. So so that's, that's awesome to hear. And, and I don't feel like anybody needs to have, you know, some high level of natural history background to – um, to enjoy it like you're talking about. So it's super cool to hear. And that's one of the things I'm really trying to do with the photography in the book is to help other people spark that curiosity and to find it for themselves. So, you know, uh, you, you know, you found that on their own and that's, that's, I think that's awesome. Yeah. You know, one of the things you, you kind of already touched on a little bit that's related to this is, uh, this idea that you, that you talked about in the book of where you kind of find an interesting subject and let's, Let's talk about maybe, you know, something in the landscape, whether it's a, a frozen piece of grass or maybe a, a rock covered in a ton of snow or something like that. And then it's, and then your next process is to then try to find a composition that showcases that interesting subject in its surroundings. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that approach to composition as opposed to maybe a more traditional formulaic rule of thirds way of looking at composing an image. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, one of the things I feel like I do regularly when I'm out in the field is to try to identify what's unique about that day. You know, what are the elements that's happening that, um, are different or interesting? And that could be a variety of combination of things, you know, uh, uh, you know, oftentimes in the winter, for instance, there's not much flow in water because it's all frozen. But occasionally, there's a lot of snow combined with a lot of flowing water. And if that's happening and that's a unique thing in that moment, that's what I'm trying to capture. Um, those different combination of elements that aren't as common or aren't as regular um, and really try to highlight those pieces of the puzzle. Um, and combining you know obviously different lighting and angles and things like that all tie into it but but more than anything else um, really trying to identify uh, what's unique about the particular feature that I'm photographing or the combination of of weather patterns or elements that are out there um, and put them into some kind of cohesive picture in my head or in front of in, in the viewfinder yeah yeah I, th- I think 
that 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 way of, of photographing can lead to some really interesting, but also I think at least what's important for me and probably a lot of other photographers is it can also lead to something that's super unique to you, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so you know, I, I, I don't see a ton of imagery, but I did recently see one of your images I thought was really cool, and I think it kind of is like that. I think you might have even written about it where it was a it was a, a tree that was backlit and the everything behind it was totally dark. And you just had this awesome rim lit, uh, I think it was a conifer maybe. Um, oh, that just yeah. really stood out. Do you know what I'm talking about? You, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and and it just, I think that that was, it seems very analogous to what you're talking about, that it was a unique situation. Uh, you might've been waited for it because you, you, you had the pre-visualization of that happening. And it was exactly combining those kind of unique elements at that particular moment to create a, uh, 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 your own vision and your own unique way of portraying that visually. Uh, and I think that's, that's a big part of it for me and what I really appreciate in looking at other people's imagery as well. Yeah. Same here. I, I'm always curious about what draws someone to photograph a scene in a certain way that's maybe different than your kind of your traditional, like, Oh, I'm going to put my tripod holes in the exact same spot that somebody <laughs> else did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fortunately, I don't have to worry about that too much because I, I, um, I tend to not go to those spots very much. For me, sure. um, uh, a big part of photography is really a wilderness experience, and it's being connected to nature. And I just, I just can't get that if I'm shoulder to shoulder with other people or shooting in a parking area or off a road or something like that. So I tend to totally go away from those places, even if it's an awesome spot. I'll try to find somewhere else. Um, where I can really d- dive into the overall experience that I'm trying to have rather than just capturing uh, a, a beautiful image because that's that's not exactly what it's about for me. Yeah, it's, um, I'm, I always try to explain that to other people too because for me it's it's kind of this really interesting process that happens for me is where it almost feels like you're you're exploring the wilderness or you're exploring the landscape, you're connecting with it, um, you're trying to kind of feel what stories it's trying to tell you. And then once you find something that catches your attention, you get like really excited and then you're trying to figure out uh, how do I make a photograph of this in a way that actually makes sense. And I don't know, for me, like that's, that's so much fun and can be so rewarding, but it can also be incredibly frustrating. All of the above, man, all of the above. Exactly. No, it's super fun and rewarding and, and a great challenge and a puzzle to put together and it's just it's it's fun to work through that process but yeah i mean you know trying to do that i still fail more than i'm successful with it and and uh so that can be a little frustrating and discouraging especially standing in front of something it's like oh my god i should be able to make something awesome compelling out of this and it doesn't always come to be um but still i would take that than the kind of cookie cutter beautiful you know, landscape that you see, you know, a thousand times. Again, it's, and I'm going to disparage anybody from what they're doing because it's a great experience for however we want to approach it. But for me, that's just not the experience that I want to have when I'm out in the natural world. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I think I've said this on a couple of podcast episodes now, but I'd be all about uh, photographing iconic locations if, if I was by myself. And, <laughs> you know, like that's really what it's about for me is, you know, even if I've seen a scene before, it's still really neat to see it for yourself and try to make a photograph of it. It's when you're surrounded by a ton of other people where it gets 
I don't know, it diminishes the experience, at least for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's so true. And, 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 you know, I don't want to sound like totally antisocial because I really do like people <laughs> a lot and I enjoy, I enjoy, I enjoy having personal connections, but, but I, you know, I could probably count on my hands the number of times I've gone out and photographed with somebody else. Um, it just doesn't happen very often. Uh, cause I, 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 I gain both more gratification also, a deeper connection and, and, and tend to be more productive when I'm on my own. I'm not, you know, talking to somebody or worrying about where we're going to go or things like that. And as well as just seeing more wildlife, just because you're quieter and you're more oh, sure. kind of peaceful and things like that. So, you know, I so rarely um, either go out with other photographers or even have other photographers anywhere near me or within my field of vision. It's just, um, I think we have a share a similar um, want for that kind of experience. Yeah, definitely. Although I will say that um, for me anyway, there is something really fun about uh, photographing with like one or two other people, um, especially people that maybe see the world in a totally different way that you do than you do, uh, just because it's really interesting to kind of have that influence rub off on you. Like, oh, I would have never seen that, you know. So yeah, I think I think there is some value in that type of um, of an outing. But I totally appreciate the solitude and the self-discovery approach as well. So <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, I wouldn't be adverse to, hey, we should go in the field sometime together. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be adverse to, you know, hanging out with other folks that do have that kind of similar, uh, well, I guess both ethic for being in the natural world and, um, uh, and, and, and share kind of a similar, um, goals for, for, for the experience and what they're doing there. So yeah, yeah. I'd open myself up to those kinds of opportunities. Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head, that that shared kind of approach and shared ethic and shared appreciation for nature, I think, is critical for that to work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, so I want to get back to your book a little bit more. Um, One of the things I thought was really interesting about the way that you structured it was that you partnered with um, other scientists for each section of the book, and they wrote... um, different essays um, within the book in different sections. And one of the uh, sections was uh, written by James McGrew. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, one thing I really loved about what he said about your book, or perhaps I guess about you in general, is that you're, you're trying to use photography to inspire others to experience their own connections to a place and ultimately help preserve the environment everywhere, which I think anyone who listens to this podcast knows that if I read something like that, it would definitely bring a smile to my face and get me excited because I talk about that type of I stuff all the time. But I was hoping to hear kind of from your own words what that looks like for you uh, as a photographer. Well, it might help to give a quick like background for for, for, for the book. Um, sh- I mean, should I do that real quick? And Yeah, that, that would be great. Okay. Um, so, so as I was photographing Yosemite over a number of years, um, obviously I'm following in the footsteps of, of loads of amazing photographers, both, you know, predating me and concurrently, you know, lots of folks have amazing portfolios of, of Yosemite. Um, but as time went on, one of the things I felt like differentiated what I had versus a lot of folks is a really broad range of imagery of the park. So from the big grand landscape to intimates, 
um, front country, deep into the back country that people don't see very much, you know, all seasons, wildlife, plant life, kind of a really broad spectrum of the park. Um, and so I always wanted to, to highlight that in some way. Another thing that struck me over a period of time when I was doing um, uh, presentations was that people were always far more engaged with what I was talking about and, and, and would have the ability to retain the information better when I was showing pretty pictures along with talking rather than standing up in front of people and yapping, you know, in front <laughs> of them. and maybe it's because I'm not a compelling enough speaker, but, but it just, I found that, that using imagery as a vehicle to teach and to help people understand things was really powerful. And that ended up being real the model for the book was, was, was using that imagery. So there's an awful lot of text in there for a coffee table photography book. And, um, uh, you know, I wrote part of it and I brought in, like you mentioned, 13 other amazing folks. Most of them are really good friends of mine to write more in-depth pointed essays on things that I thought were, were really both interesting and compelling for folks to understand and know about. And the overarching goal of all that is, I think, coming back to your original question, uh, is that I've always felt that the more people understand and appreciate the natural world, the more they'll care about it. And the more they'll care, the more they care about it, the more likely they are to help become better stewards of the land upon which we all totally depend as humanity. And, and that could be from their personal decisions and in what they're doing uh, in day-to-day life, or it can be contributing to organizations that are that are doing that kind of work. But the overall goal of, uh, of the book was to really to help people's connection with wilderness and, and gain a deeper understanding so that we treat our land better um, and, and are better stewards of it for future generations and to spark that curiosity so that, you know, it opens up windows and doors for people to get out there and explore and learn stuff on their own and, 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 and teach it and get their kids involved and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that's kind of what you were getting at with the question. Um, yeah, definitely. That was really important to me in, in putting, in putting the project together. Yeah. I'm curious, have you had, have you received, um, a lot of feedback from people regarding kind of the combination of text and images and how it's impacted their, their approaches to visiting Yosemite or their approaches to photographing Yosemite? Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten loads. It's been fantastic. Uh, just over and over again, you know, I, I get, I get a, a comment from somebody who'll say something like, you know, I, you know, I bought the book for the photography cause it's beautiful, but boy, I'm learning all this amazing stuff about natural history, you know? And I just got a, another note from a friend of mine actually the other day who says like nightly he's reading the book with his two kids and the kids oh, cool. are picking up. Yeah. The kids are picking up little tidbits of information about the natural world, sparking their curiosity. So I, I I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback um, from folks along those lines. And, and it's been extremely rewarding because, you know, you know, I really had no idea how it would be received and if people would really appreciate having that many words in a, in a book that's really a coffee table photography book. But, but uh, it's, it's been really empowering to see that it has worked and, and people appreciate it. Yeah. One of the other things that I, that I was able to distill from your book was this idea that there's an importance of understanding the history of the places we photograph. And I was hoping you could touch on that a little bit in terms of why we should even care about that as photographers. Um, 
are you are you talking about like like a like a um, like the geographic history or or the cultural history or yeah I think you could I think you could make a a cogent ar- argument for any type of history whether it's natural history or the cultural history or maybe you know what's super interesting about Yosemite is the photographic history of the people that have come before you yeah yeah well. Without a doubt, I mean the 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 you know somebody in particular um, was one of the first places that 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 really was highly photographed, and imagery is really what helped to make it become a national park and kind of establish general um, 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 ideas for conservation. Uh, it seemed like it was really kind of the the the, the beginning of that whole movement, and. You know, I wasn't the first to use um, imagery to um, connect people with place. I mean, that way predated me, and, and we're just kind of tying into that. And and the more you understand and know about those different facets of whatever those different kinds of histories of a place are, again, the, I feel like the more connected you are to it and and the more enjoyable it is and the more important it is to, to pass that information along. Um, and it 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 opens opens the eyes to several different levels of engagement from kind of your current um, perspective there, but also tying it into what happened before you in that area. You know, the Native Americans, you know, Yosemite Valley, for instance. Whenever I'm wandering through there, you know, I'm always thinking back in my head, well, God, you know, who was here back when? Where were they hanging out? You know, what? what was going on and, and uh, finding shards of obsidian and things like that are just always just so much fun and, and engaging and, and um, uh, are, are much bigger than my little piece of the puzzle and being out there. Yeah. You couldn't, you can't see me, but I was like, I was like violently shaking my head up and down. Yes. Because <laughs> I really appreciate what you said about if, if people have knowledge and an understanding of the history of a place I think that in turn is going to instill a lot of respect and um, ideals of wanting to keep that place sacred. And, and it's people are going to have a, a much deeper appreciation of that place. I mean, if you think about the way we're raised, at least here in the United States, I mean, think about how many times in growing up did we learn about, you know, the Constitution and, and, you know, Christopher Columbus and and the founding fathers and and all of this stuff and the you know the 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 pledge of allegiance and all of these things and it I think the result of that is that most Americans have a very 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 deeply patriotic uh, feeling about this country because of that um, historical perspective of our of where we come from yeah and I yeah. I think you could make the same argument as photographers. Um, about about the places that we photograph and having a having an understanding and appreciation of those histories is is really going to make you appreciate them. And I would even make the argument that you're probably going to end up making better photographs of that place. Oh, I totally agree. I think that's that's spot on. I think you said there is is really uh, is totally correct, and uh, it's not just more fun and engaging because I feel like the more you know, the more the more gratification you get out of it. But uh, I totally agree that, that it also lends itself to producing more compelling images as well. Yeah, definitely. W- would you say that um, maybe 
this is a this might be taking a little bit into the weeds, but I'm curious if you have the same thoughts around just the history of photography in general. Like, do you have an appreciation of, of any of that? So, from, I, just to be quite as a honest, photographer, I, 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 I don't know that much about the history of photography. You know, I'm really, I was never, I never was trained in any art form, and I didn't necessarily like study or look at lots of early photographers. I, I've seen some of the imagery and I love it, but it wouldn't be fair to say that, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm that deeply understanding or that, that understanding of, of all of the amazing stuff that was done um, uh, before me. It's just, I, I, it's not exactly in my wheelhouse. So it's hard for me totally. to speak really on the, on, on individual photographers that are out there rather than just the kind of the broader overarching um, concepts of what photography and painting has done for conservation, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm certainly no expert myself. I just dabble. I, um, <clears throat> I was able to read the, the uh, Ansel Adams biography from Mary Street Allender. And that was a really fascinating journey around that period of time. And I don't know, I, th- I feel like, you know, when you learn more about the craft of photography and the historical aspects of it, it does, at least for me, it, it kind of changed the way I thought about several, several issues within the field of photography. So similarly to how I feel like if you study the history of a place, it changes the way you think about it as a photographer too. So yeah, yeah, I think definitely. there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, so another thing that I got out of um, your book is you talk a lot about the importance of patience in landscape photography. And I know that a lot of people struggle with this as photographers, especially if you haven't, if you're just getting into landscape photography, it can be one of the hardest things about it. And I know a lot of street photographers hate, hate landscapes (laughs) because it's because of that, you know, they want to move around and they want to, but in landscape, I think there is something to be said about patience. And I was curious for how you work with the craft. Tell us about that importance uh, in your approach. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I know that there's plenty of photographers that would take a totally opposite approach where they want to be moving around. They want to fully chase the light and constantly be on the move and, and, and finding new compositions and different things. Um, and not to say that I don't do that some of the time when there's really dynamic light maybe or things like that. Sure. But I really like hanging out in a place and watching the light change over the landscape developing a relationship with that place. And for me, that can't happen if I'm just constantly on the move and dragging my gear around. Um, I, 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 part of it as a background, as a biologist, you know, I was spending hours in blinds, you know, watching birds nests and things like that. So I definitely have instilled like a deep uh, ability to sit in a place <laughs> and have that patience that, that other people might not. Um, but I really, I, I find I just enjoy it. Like I really like watching the clouds move over the horizon and the dappled light that changes and how um, the sun coming out of the clouds changes what I'm looking at. Um, And then using that information to help figure out, well, when is the best moment to shoot? And and I found myself, and maybe you've had similar experiences where like, if I'm on a, if I, if I'm at a spot or maybe a composition that I just think is 
badass that I absolutely love. I have no problem hanging out there for hours. And during that period of time, there might be a tiny couple of windows of seconds even when the sun is just coming out from behind a cloud and creating really soft, beautiful illumination or just hitting in the right spot in that composition where, boy, that one moment is so much better than all the other moments that I was there. And when you look back at the images from that time period, there's boom, there's one that's just hands above better than the other ones. And I wouldn't get that if I'm moving around on a regular basis. So for my workflow and, 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 and wanting and, and enjoying being in one place, um, it helps me to key into those, those really individual fleeting moments in time um, that are, that are beautiful and compelling um, and, uh, and, and, and very short lived. Not to mention the fact that I find if I'm hanging out in one place, I just tend to see one of our wildlife, um, cause they don't know you're there. They might walk right past you. Uh, and it definitely opens the door for those kinds of opportunities too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no doubt. What, maybe this is a bad question, but what is your secret to being patient? Cause I, I struggle personally a lot with that and i was hoping you had some so tips on <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, <man. laughs> like some kind of way of meditating or oh. something like what do you do to, to keep that patience in place <laughs> i don't know that's so weird i i never think of it like that i maybe i just i'm so like easily impressed maybe i don't know but i could just sit and stare at a, in a beautiful place a beautiful landscape at the edge of my meadow I can, where we live, I can just sit there and look out in the meadow for periods of time. And then every once in a while, I'll see a coyote go cruise to the meadow or an owl fly across the other side. Um, and I just, I, I enjoy watching it and, it. and I gain so much gratification in those little windows um, of seeing something that outweigh the time that I'm not seeing something as compelling if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And so it's, it's kind of the big, the big picture uh, of those, of those little windows. And, and boy, I wish I had some secret for that. I don't know. I just, I just, I just like staring at the natural world. <laughs> no, that makes sense. I think part of my, my, uh, one of my strengths is that natural curiosity. But then I think the weakness is that I have a short attention span because I'm like, Oh, look at that over there. Oh, look at that. Oh. So I think my problem is I'm more like a squirrel. Sometimes I'm, like moving from one thing to the next. But I have found that uh, that it is very advantageous to kind of revisit places over and over again to, to, to gain a relationship with it and to really develop um, that kind of, I don't know, secret knowledge about kind of what different places are going to look like at different times of the day or different times of the year. So I think there is a huge benefit to that approach. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you said right there, I really like, and I totally agree with it. And that's developing a relationship with a place. And uh, there's numerous geographic locations and individual trees that I feel like I have developed relationships with over the years. And I love visiting these old friends and being getting back to these spots and seeing them just like you mentioned, in different seasons at different times. And then I also really, I like the intellectual challenge of trying to figure out when I think is going to, the conditions come together to create the most compelling image for that spot, whether it's a lighting condition or a seasonal thing or things like that. I'm constantly playing in my head different 
um, permutations of what's going on in that to um, try to put myself in the right place at the right time, uh, you know, physically and, and, and mentally uh, to, to capture that. And, and that process I really like, as well as getting deeper into those relationships with those places. That's that, that I love what you did there. Cause that, to me, that's a big part of it. And I really appreciate that, that for me, that, that, that uh, element of, of photography. Yeah. One of the things that I like to do is um, I use an app on my phone called Gaia GPS, which I'm sure a lot oh, yeah. of people have heard of. And yeah, yeah. I like to, when I come across a scene that, you know, maybe isn't that good right then, but has like potential for either, you know, if there was weather or if it was like, maybe there was snow or different, you know, some, some, something else. I always like mark it as a waypoint and I'll make like a little note in my waypoint, like, oh, this would be good in April under these conditions or, you know, something like that. So I'm always at least trying to be open-minded about how a scene might look differently in different conditions. So, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I think that's a big part. I think that, that the better you are at, at, at pre-visualizing those things and predicting different uh, opportunities and the way uh, different conditions can change that kind of scene really opens the door for more expressive kinds of photography. Yeah. And I think it also uh, increases your ability or not ability, but it increases your success rate in terms of getting images that you're excited about. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I guess I just put it in context. It's all that being said, you know, for all the times I've revisited certain trees or certain places, I'm still right. I'm still probably the majority of the time, you know, you can consider it failing. I don't know what people consider failing, but in terms of capturing images that you find really compelling, but I'd still uh, take those windows of time and, and, and being in that place, even if I don't capture something great um, and then revisiting it another time and trying it again, I just don't get tired of, 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 of uh, deepening those um, experiences and relationships with uh, all of the, friends we have out there in the natural world. Yeah. And I, and I don't mean to go down this rabbit hole too deep and I'm sure my listeners are tired of me talking about it, but you know, I have such a higher appreciation of that philosophical approach to landscape photography than the one where someone goes to a place, they take a photograph, the light's not good or there's no clouds or whatever. And then they put those things in after the fact in Photoshop. I just, to me, that is just, it. I don't know, like, yeah, it just well, feels cheap yeah. to me. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 my, my personal take on that is everybody's got their own way of, of how they want to express themselves artistically. And, and if, 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 if that's really what people like and they gain gratification in it and they like the post-processing side of it, um, that's cool. Like, I don't disparage that at all. Um, I, I don't think it's quite right when that kind of stuff is necessarily um, um, uh, maybe sold or marketed or, or thought of as maybe an, uh, a, a single moment in time. And it right. doesn't affect how people look at my imagery because I don't do that. And I am accused oftentimes of doing major post-processing or composite images, which is something I've never done. Um, so it does kind of irk me a little bit when I'm accused of that kind of thing, when it's just not in my workflow. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, dis- I don't, I don't really disparage it for that. Um, sure. You know, I just, it's, everyone's got their own way of expressing themselves. 
Yeah, no, I agree with that. I just, you know, you just touched on one of the arguments that I always try to relate to people when they say like, well, what I do with my photography doesn't affect you at all. And so just let me do whatever I want. And I'm I'm like, well, it does affect me because it's changing how people look at photos, you know? Yeah. And yeah. like you just said, they're accusing you of doing something like that. And obviously the word accusation is a negative is within a negative connotation in that, you know, people are saying, well, that you're, that's not, a, that wasn't a real moment in your photograph and people wouldn't associate it with a negative connotation. I don't think, I don't know. No, you're right. No, you're right. No, totally. And that, that's, that's a, that's a touchy one. And, and I mean, yeah, people will come from all different angles and, and argue this, you know, ad nauseum, uh, but, <laughs> and we have, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, it, but it does affect me because, because now oftentimes people come in with that preconceived notion that they're looking at a killer image and that's what people are doing these days. So I must be doing it too. And uh, I just, that, that does bother me a little bit because that's just not, that's just not what I do and that's not the way I approach it. And so uh, you know, if I had my druthers, I feel like that kind of stuff should be just explicitly stated as such. It's a, you know, however you want to use the terminology, you know, whether you actually call it a composite or you, you know, you call it a, you know, a digital art or different things. But, but, you know, when you call it terminology of it being a photograph, people have a certain mindset of what that is. And um, it can be challenging in those kinds of conversations. I don't like having to defend myself, you know, in my own gallery with people saying, oh my God, that can't be, that can't be, you know, a single shot. And I mean, actually great. I mean, I actually, a great example of that is, is, is the one image uh, that early on was one of the winners of the nature's best competition. Um, you know, it's, it's done the best for me for a long period of time of El Capitan, this beautiful ray of light came through, winter shot, this and that. And, and I've literally heard people standing in the gallery and say, God, he must have photoshopped that bit of light in there and going on and on. And I'm like, actually, I jump in the conversation. I'm like, no, actually, I took that shot. That was on film. That was before the digital days. It was shot on film. My slide, it's a really accurate representation, this image, you know, the print of that original slide. And I'm just having to defend myself. And, I, I, you know, that's a bummer. I, I feel like I shouldn't have to do that. Um, but that's just the way it is these days. Yeah. Yeah, you, you said it well. I mean, I feel like that's the one piece of the thing that people forget is like, it does affect other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't know, maybe other, maybe people listening who like to do that stuff or I'll say, well, who cares? I don't know. But I don't know. I've heard lots of people say it like, oh, well, I do care because I don't like being accused of that or I wish people would just be more honest. You know, I think that's what's. Well, and, and I guess, I think that's a good point what you share there. So, so I think, I think honesty and, and, and straight up is important. And, and, you know, so much of it is driven these days by, by the social media and the likes and creating the most, you know, sensational kinds of imagery. And, and, um, I mean, certainly to each his own. Um, but, uh, it, it, it's changed the conversation a lot and, um, and everyone's got to find their own, their own understanding and what they're comfortable with. Um, but to say it doesn't affect other people at all, that's just, just not being open and honest in the bigger scheme of things. I don't have a problem with people doing it. Um, but you gotta look at all sides of these kinds of, uh, conversations. And, and Oh, for sure. I mean, 
I I definitely appreciate their perspective as well. You know, like they're trying to just create something artistic if that's really their motivation. That's that's super cool. But also know that how you talk about it and how you present it and that could have an effect on others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how you present it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think being being honest about it is is what's is is one of the key parts of it. Cool. Well, so I want to shift gears a little bit um, because something you said very early on in our conversation is that, uh, you know, you had a lot of anxiety when someone said like, oh, you, you'd be making all of your income and food, putting food on the table by selling, selling <laughs> your photography. And I, I really just wanted to dive in into talking about how have you made it work as a business? Uh, yeah. So I think for me, at least it's been generating lots of different revenue streams. So, um, you know, and this is, again, kind of me figuring it out as I was going. Because I didn't really know photographers when I was starting. I didn't have any mentors saying, hey, this is how you should do it, or these are the best approaches. So just as I was getting into it a little bit, um, and as time went on, I found that, um, you know, in our gallery, I've got some really big, fine art prints that are big and beautiful, but they're also really expensive and, Mm -hmm. and, and not everybody can afford that. And you sell a couple of those. It's great. But I also wanted my, my photography to be accessible for people. You know, even if I was some famous photographer, which I'm not, you know, I don't think I would have ever gone to the, you know, 50 limited edition kinds of prints um, exclusively uh, even if it generated more income, because I also felt like I don't want myself to be exclusive, exclusive, where only super rich people can have it on their walls. Like I really want it to be enjoyed by as broad a population as possible, just for their own enjoyment factor, but also again to help people connect with wilderness, which is kind of my overarching goal and what I want to do. And if I'm only reaching out to a handful of people that have a lot of money, well, that's not really doing it. So from a from a from a print standpoint, um, you know, I've got big fine art prints. I sell lots of smaller matted prints, which I make myself. So the margin is really really good. I can wholesale them. I've developed relationships with lots of different stores and lodges in and around Yosemite um, that sell those prints. You know, and then they talked about starting a card line. So I started making a greeting card line that's carried in a variety of places. Um, I've had stuff licensed. So a couple of lodges that I've developed relationships with were kind of redoing their lodge and they licensed a bunch of, of my images to decorate the interior of the rooms, the lobbies and things like that. Um, maybe eight or nine years ago, I started doing workshops um, and I just, I tend to do really small uh, private or very small group workshops where I can really commit my attention to the folks I'm taking out and make it a really personalized kind of experience. Um, and so I, I, I do that a fair amount of the time. Uh, I've also developed relationships with some conservation organizations. So I'll go out and, and work on some properties that they are, you know, some land trusts and things like that that are mm-hmm. um, needing imagery of, uh, of the lands they're trying to incorporate into their um, into their conservation measures and, and I'll do some work for them. Um, so it's really publications here and there, you know, some calendars and, and magazines occasionally. So none of those individual things make a ton of money. Um, well, in general, it's like I make a ton of money. I want to sound like I make that much money, but, 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 but all of them together create enough streams of revenue that it's a really viable and tangible business. Yeah. I love what you said about, um, 
wanting your work to be available to anyone, regardless of their ability to pay, um, or at least to, uh, to afford a huge print. Because uh, I, a couple of years ago, I was going through a, a process of redoing my website and reimagining how I presented and sold my work. And I kind of dabbled with the idea of doing just limited edition prints and maximizing my income. And then I kind of did an about face and took kind of the philosophical approach you just said, where I, I really wanted my work to be available to anyone. Um, obviously, I mean, I want to make a profit on every sale, but I also know that there's people out there that may, they might only have a couple hundred dollars to spend on artwork and that's okay. So yeah, I've done something very similar. I have, you know, smaller, just fine art prints that someone could get for a couple hundred bucks. And then I have huge acrylic prints that you could get for several thousand dollars. And I think I think it's hard to market yourself that way, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but, no, but I kind of don't care, you know, like I'm okay with that. Well, and everyone's got to find their own route there. So some, plenty of people would argue that, you know, for a couple of, for whatever reason, whether it's just a bottom line, a financial reason, they think they can kind of maximize their income by, by making things more exclusive. Um, you know, I, I imagine some folks also might take that route because, maybe for the notoriety, you know, you want to become a little bit more whatever famous or known for being this exclusive fine art photographer and, you know, certainly to each his own. Um, but no, I, I think, uh, you know, I definitely took that track that you're talking about. I mentioned before, that just, I really want to be accessible. And so to take that even further, so, you know, my, I, I make small matted prints for 40 bucks, you know, right. that, that, that I sell tons of in different places. And, uh, uh, the fact that I can make them on my own um, I, to so cheaply that it's easy to wholesale them, and the margin is is so fantastic that that you know I think if I really compared it, probably make considerably more than I do with the fine art pieces because they cost so much to produce, even if you sell them for quite a bit more. So um, you know everyone's got a different way of approaching that, and and to each his own for sure. But I really um, I, 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 I want as many people to enjoy the photography as possible, basically is what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other interesting things that you had mentioned before was that you have this, uh, you, I think you call it mountain sage, which, you know, it's not just a photo gallery. Can you talk a little bit about that approach to, to kind of combining different things to make it viable? Sure. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think that that's, that's one of the things that's helped kind of from the financial side. So uh, in 2002, uh, when my well, future wife at the time and I moved to Groveland, we started this business, Mountain Sage. Uh, it's actually in my wife's great-grandparents' homestead from the 1870s. It's a super cool old property um, outside in a couple acres, we uh, uh, developed a plant nursery and gardens and a music venue where we host uh, local community events and concerts during the summer. And then inside the old house built in 1867, super cool historic house, is a coffee and tea house, a little cafe, uh, and a gallery. And it's certainly those combination of elements, I think, that makes it work financially. Like I couldn't really, for me, at least personally, imagine just having a gallery. Uh, I think you'd have to sell an extraordinary amount of prints and then to be able to staff it and everything else would be challenging. So by combining these different um, facets into a business, people might come in for a cup of coffee, you know, and see the photography and walk out with a small print or, uh, 
uh, come in for, uh, uh, you know, looking at the photography and walk out with a plant from the nursery. Um, so the, the, the combination of things and finding something that's engaging, one of the things we tried to do there is uh, have stuff that would be appealing to a really broad demographic. So little kids to great grandparents across all different socioeconomic backgrounds. There's just cool stuff to do on the property. Wander around out in the nursery. It's beautiful. Looking at the old barn from 1850 that's out there and looking at the imagery, getting a cup of tea and a scone or whatever it is. There's there's just a lot to look at in addition to kind of just the old historic nature of the property. Uh, And that's definitely helped to to make the the photography side of it um, work, work financially. Cool. Yeah. And I imagine that that kind of broader scope also helps you develop even deeper and broader relationships with a wider variety of people that you can then leverage um, in a positive way towards those various business goals in those different areas. Exactly. All of the above. I mean, the Mountain Sage is, uh, we've been in existence for, I guess, 18 years now. And, um, it really has developed quite a reputation. So a lot of people know about it. We might be in the Bay Area or somewhere and happen to say we live in Groveland and people are chatting. Us, oh, yeah, there's this cool nursery there. It's called photography. It's called a – I can't remember the name of it, you know, and, and we're like laughing <laughs> back our heads, you know. It's like, oh, is it Mountain Sage? Like, oh, yeah, that's great. We're like, oh, well, that's, that's our place. And, uh, and it's really cool that, that the, over time has definitely developed that, that, that reputation and um, and again, those those outwork networking of relationships have um, have just expanded massively and keep kind of coming back around um, in a really positive way. That's so cool, awesome man. Well, tell me a little bit about this uh, upcoming workshop you have. Yeah, yeah. So so I, you know I do um, regular. Uh, private and small group workshops in Yosemite and Eastern Sierra. But I'm really excited that uh, this coming spring, it looks like Alex Noriega and I are going to team up and do a workshop in Yosemite, kind of the peak time uh, in the spring where the waterfalls are cranking in the park and the dogwoods should be flowering and all the beautiful lush green vegetation and the deciduous trees just starts leafing out. So it's, it's without a doubt one of the peak little windows of time that has some of the most compelling photography in there. And, and, uh, and Alex and I are going to do the workshop together. And it's going to be really cool because we kind of have a different, not a different approach, but a different relationship with the park. So, you know, I know Yosemite pretty well, right? I spent so much time there that, that I know where the light's going to change in different times. And I might know if there's dynamic conditions where we want to be and, and kind of pre-visualizing and knowing those, those particular aspects of it. Whereas Alex is developing a relationship with Yosemite, hasn't been there a whole lot or photographed there a whole lot. So, so the clients can see what it looks like you know, really looking through the eyes of, and I consider Alex a master. I think he's an absolutely phenomenal photographer. But how he approaches that process, right? Coming to a place for the first time, what catches his eye? You know, what he's thinking about, how he's trying to make compelling images when he's just getting to know a place. So I feel like the people that come out with this will be able to see it from a couple of different perspectives that ought to be really valuable and interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Alex and I got to teach together at a Yosemite back in February. And neither of us had been there before. And it was so much fun because we both kind of had that same approach. Like, well, 
I've never been here before, but I am so curious to like find something interesting. And it was so much fun being with Alex because I think we both saw different things that caught our interest and we were able to show that to the students. And I think you're right. His, his approach to photography is perfect for that type of uh, to workshop. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm excited. I mean, I'm excited to go with him in the Valley and kind of see how, he's, how he sees things indifferent than I might because I, 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 I've seen it so much and that's not a bad thing, but I might see it in a different way because I've seen it so much that, that seeing it from somebody's eyes that's more novel, I'm super excited about it. I think it'd be super, it'd be really fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, you should come out to Yosemite at some point, man. We should go run around there and shoot a little bit. Oh, no doubt, dude. It's such a cool place. I I had so much fun there. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, so last question. Who would you like for us to have here on the podcast? Who inspires you? Um, so it took me a little bit of time to kind of scope that out because – like I was mentioning, I don't really, I, I'm not super connected in the photography world. So I don't know a lot of photographers, but I think I've with a couple of names that, that, that would be interesting for you. Uh, one is uh, Jerry Dojel. Mm-hmm. He's uh, uh, both a fantastic photographer and really um, uh, into conservation. And um, it's a big part of his world. Uh, he worked with uh, Galen Rowell back, back then and, and um, still teaches a lot of workshops. But I think you have a really great perspective, someone to chat with. Um, another one uh, is Ian Shive. Uh, he's also just a phenomenal photographer, um, also really into conservation. Uh, he just published a great book on uh, the National Wildlife Refuges of the United States, talking about oh, cool. the importance of preserving uh, open space uh, with, a lot of, with some text in it as well. Um, and then, you know, I hadn't thought of this until you mentioned him, but James McGrew, um, who wrote uh, the piece in, in, in my book, and, and he's, uh, he's both a, a phenomenal painter, um, but also a, a, a great photographer. I mean, he teaches photography workshops, but in addition to that, he's a truly a world-class painter and a great naturalist. Um, so I think that might be really interesting and different um, a conversation uh, for you to, to engage in. Awesome, man. Well, those are great. Yeah. I've, I've engaged with uh, Jerry a couple of times on social media for sure. So I'm familiar with, with him a little bit. So yeah, those are great recommendations. I appreciate that, man. Hey, so is there anything else? Cause I, one thing I would, I would like to add, we have another couple of minutes. Is that cool? Yeah, totally, man. So, cause this is still really important to me and that is like, I, I, I truly feel that, that, um, that, that photographers, nature photographers at least, really have a, a responsibility um, to the natural world and, and, and conservation in general. I mean, I, I could talk and even argue all day long if necessary about how as humanity we need intact ecosystems and, and open space and wilderness for first for our survival as humans. But even beyond that, Photographers in particular, you know, whether they're professional photographers that really make their living um, at capturing images or amateurs that just gain gratification and, and, and respite um, out there, they all depend upon these places to, uh, to fulfill their craft and pursue that craft. And one of the things that really jumped out at me when I was kind of diving into my little forays into the social media world was how many people out there have 
photographer on their tagline, you know, on, 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 on Instagram, for instance. And, and beyond that, how many of those folks have these massive followings of you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of followers? And that what struck me so much of the time was for all the images, not for all, but for, for the vast majority of images that I was seeing out there, the narrative with those images was like, you know, how epic the little experience was and how hard it was to get to and the crazy light and this and that. But so rarely was it about the importance of that place and the importance of ethics in the natural world and conservation. And it just, it, it started to really bother me. I'm thinking to myself, well, all these people really depend upon these areas. So what can we do to, to kind of expand that, that visibility and that importance? And, and that's something that, that is going to be one of my next kind of big goals is, is to find ways to leverage all of that because you know, my little, my little social media following is a good little bit <laughs> if I'm going to post something like that. But if there's a way to help folks um, spread that message and that word, um, that can be incredibly valuable. Um, and I just think it's imperative. I, mean, I just think that, like, they really think about it. Um, that's something that they should be um, devoting and committing some time to. Otherwise, it's just exploited. It's just exploiting the natural world. And that's kind of what I felt a lot of the time and I'm looking the stuff out there was just like they're out there kind of exploiting it without, you know, really digging deeper into the importance of these places. Um, so that's something that's super important to me. Yeah, me too. And I, I, you know, thinking back to my early photography years, I don't necessarily know that it was top of mind or maybe, maybe I didn't totally understand or think about like how to do that. And I think that's where a lot of people are at. It's like, yeah, I love, I love, the natural world and I want this place to be protected for future people, but I don't really know like how do I play a role in that? So I think I know you and I have had a couple of conversations about some ideas around doing that, but I think, you know, I, I would say if other people are, you know, concerned about that and are maybe trying to figure out how they can make a difference, I think, you know, the one first good way of doing it is to, you know, look up nature first photography and, you know, make that a part of the way you think about your f- photographic journeys. You know, it's not, I've heard a lot of people say that nature first is really just about like saving, saving the grass that we walk on, which, you know, I can appreciate that comment, but it's really deeper than that. You know, it's g- gaining a deeper appreciation of these places and trying to find ways to, to protect them and to, to make our messaging about these places, not just a transactional one, but a, an actual relationship. Cause you're right. So many of these people with tens and hundreds and millions of followers on social media, I mean, and they're, they're financially dependent on these places. And I think there's, you know, if anything, try to find a way to give back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you brought up nature first. Cause actually I, 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 hesitant to admit it, but I just kind of relatively recently found out about the organization, but I think it's doing just the right thing in terms of helping to spread that word and the importance of ethics in these places and the importance of that conservation uh, messaging. And so I really applaud all of you guys that are, that are that are doing that and trying to get it out there. I think it's super important. And, um, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a great, um, a great platform uh, to get it out there. So I think that's wonderful. Um, there's one yeah. other note add too that I was kind of coming back to thinking about when you asked about um, ways for people to um, 
kind of make it be successful in photography. Um, and that's pre-visualization. So I, um, it's kind of weird for me because I really come from a scientific background and I really like to have data and, you know, backing kind of things that are happening <laughs> right. out there. Yeah, totally. But, but pre-visualization, not just from pre-visualizing images that can be, can be made, but I'm a firm believer that you can manifest things happening in your life by pre-visualizing them. And it sounds kind of hippy dippy and hokey and, and crazy <laughs> like for me, cause again, I'm a scientist, but I've had this happen in my life over and over again. Uh, where, um, so for instance, when I was in college, uh, I was on an ecology field trip for a field biology class and we went up to this reserve out in Joshua Tree and, uh, it's this beautiful 500 acre reserve and super cool spot. And I just couldn't get it out of my head afterwards. Like, you know, there's a steward that was in charge of that reserve when I was out there. And then when I went back home for years afterwards, I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, I want to be that reserve steward. And I could, I would literally see myself in that place on the porch there, looking at the out, looking at the surroundings and wandering, exploring on the reserve. And I really, I, I saw it happening. And years later, the professor who was in charge of it called me out of nowhere and said, Hey, you know, the steward, the reserve steward is, is moving out and we have an opening. Are you interested in taking over? And I'm like, wow, awesome. That's great. And, and so that happened. And I could go over numerous other examples of, of things like that. And, and it's just happened so many times in my life that I really strongly advocate for folks trying to visualize those things. And it's well known in the sports world now. Like when I played competitive sports, I was doing it back then. But I didn't really know what I was doing. But yes. now professional athletes are trained to see themselves in the moment and what they're doing because there's, there's value in it. Whether we can put numbers and data behind it or not, man, I, I swear by it. I think it's totally valuable, super effective. Not that it happens all the time. But it happens enough of the time that uh, it's just a fun, fun thing to explore. And I highly encourage people to try it. No, I think there's a lot of data that su supports that approach. I mean, if you think about it, let's, let's try a different way of explaining it too, or a different example. And that would be like in the quality improvement world. You know, if you're not measuring something, you can't improve it. So the second you start measuring something, whether that be you know, a process or an output or whatever, you start paying attention to it more and you start moving yourself in that direction, whether that's you as an organization or, or a department or whatever. And I think, you know, stating those intentions and paying attention to something that you've stated is important to you is going to naturally move you in that direction, uh, whether you want to or not. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective, but that's a good angle on it as well. That's totally true. Totally true as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, awesome, man. So for people that maybe didn't hear it the first time, your book is The Nature of Yosemite, A Visual Journey. And we'll put links to that in the show notes. If people want to pick it up, I definitely highly encourage you to. It's a really great book that weaves in natural history and awesome photography. And then also we'll put a link to all the people you suggested and also your website and all that fun stuff. So man, this has been so much fun, dude. I so appreciate it. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And I want to add that, 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 um, Man, thank you because you, you know, I know it takes a lot of work to put these things together and, uh, and time and energy, but I think you're offering a really 
valuable resource for photographers at all levels. I mean, the handful of podcasts I've listened to, and I'm definitely excited to listen to a lot more of yours, have been fantastic. And I think people, there's a lot that people can glean from this information that's, um, and, and your interviews that are, are discussions uh, that, that are super valuable for people. So props to you for making it happen. Hopefully it's super successful. Uh, keep it up. And uh, man, I look forward to all of your more successes. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, thanks to Rob for joining me on the podcast. He did want me to let listeners know that he and Alex are not formally announcing their workshop for the spring quite yet, and they'll be playing it by ear. Stay tuned to either Rob's site or Alex's site to stay informed on that. Well, I want to take a special time to thank the people we like to call our producers. Their generous support over on Patreon is really helping keep the podcast afloat. I have met many of these amazing people, and they are just simply awesome and great people. It would mean the world to me if you could also support the show. Even at $5 per month, you're making a huge impact. I also enabled annual payment options if you want to save 15% on your patronage. Without further ado, thanks to Gary Randall, David Kingham, Eric Stensland, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Ken Dono, James Bakavoy, Anton Everin, Lori Berenson, William Nurse, Richard Wong, Matthias Joland, Suzanne Mathia, Frank Otto Peterson, Michael Rung, John Whitaker, Jason Clardy, Joshua Wallace, Drew Armstrong, Jim Valancourt, Jennifer King, Craig Young, Adam Bolliard, Michael DiMiola, Chuck Mora, Jacob Buchowski, and J. Fritz Rump. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.